Well, good morning. Good morning. So good to see you. So good to hear you. Hear you well. And you notice the new slide. Uh, for this hour, Children's Church is now first hour. So three, four, five, six-year-olds, make your way down. Pastor Nate can help direct you if this is a new thing for you. Take your Bibles and turn with me again to First Timothy. 1 Timothy 4, looking at the first 10 verses as we continue our study in this very important book. One of the many dilemmas of parenting is that on one hand, we really want our children to be obedient, responsible, respectful, hardworking, right? On the other hand, we want to spoil them. We want to give to them. We want to be generous. We want to forgive them when they make mistakes. And because of this tension, some parents might tend to become very rigid trying to accomplish the first. Other parents might become very permissive trying to be the second. How do those tensions resolve themselves? Because God understands. Our good, good Father understands this, and he has blended them perfectly. His goal is our godliness. But he desires and he longs to show grace. And so we're going to see both of those twin truths in our study this morning. The first five verses are really addressing this issue of God's grace. The Spirit clearly says, so Paul has received this by inspiration, the Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. This is serious. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it's consecrated by the word of God and prayer. What this tells us first off is that Satan and his demons hate the idea of God's grace and goodness. Starting with the cross, and Paul will get to that later in verse 10, God's the Savior of all men. Satan hates the concept of grace and that God delights to give good gifts to his children. And so there are deceivers who are teaching this demonic denial of God's grace and goodness. The Spirit says in later times this will happen, and the later times is not specifically a term just for the end times, like we've studied prophecy, rapture, and tribulation. It's not just for then, because Paul himself elsewhere, John, Peter, have all used phrases like the latter or later times 
to describe actually the age we are in. This is that dispensation after the cross. And so this is, this is stuff that's happening, false teaching that's already occurring in this age that some will abandon or depart from the faith. So the question is, who is this and what does it mean? First of all, let's clarify what it does not mean. It does not mean that a believer in Christ can lose their salvation. Uh, We know from the New Testament it's clear that eternal salvation is a gift given to us as an irreversible act by simple faith for those who put their faith in Christ, who died for the sins, rose again. And from then on, the security of our salvation rests not on our future faithfulness, but on God's future faithfulness to his promise. So we can relax and know that's not in jeopardy when it says departing from the faith. So what does this mean, depart or apostatize? It means to leave or abandon something you once believed. To abandon something you once believed believe the change of mind that you no longer believe what you said you believed it is specifically the faith and the faith here is referring to that body of truth that christians those who believe the bible would maintain like chapter 1 verse 19 paul told pastor timothy there in ephesus hold on to the faith so, so keep teaching maintain hold on to persist in what you know to be true But this is a warning then that some will abandon what they believed or knew to be true. Sadly, sometimes Christians abandon the truths they once believed. And it gets really confusing for us because then we begin to ask the most important question, so are they saved or not? And the fact is, we don't always know because all we can really go by is what they say. They believe. So we indeed might be in some confusion, but what we know is that if someone stops or claims to stop believing the truth, Satan is behind it. That's a demonic thing when someone now believes a lie because Satan is who? The father of liars and lies. John 8, 44. Deceitful spirits, things taught by demons. doesn't mean that someone is directly involved in occult activity. They could be, but that doesn't mean that. But it means that they have succumbed to the demonic ideas that are filling our screens and our pages. They're falling prey to that. And whether it's actors in a show or a movie or, as I heard something last week, a news commentator interviewing this artist and congratulating uh, this person for being so brave to, to come out and declare who they really are. But it's sin. It's against the scripture. And so the question for us is, do we, do our children have the discernment to recognize when teaching is demonic? It's not just different. It's rooted in the enemy himself. So we need to make sure we have a plan to learn, to know, and whenever possible, pass on biblical truth. Such teaching, verse 2, comes through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. So there's a demonic or spiritual origin, but then there is 
a human being who is communicating it. That's, that's how it comes to us. They're hypocrites. They're liars. Their consciences are seared or like cauterized. They've now, they've now come, they've solidified, settled. They actually believe now what is not true. But they're actually hypocrites like this word is like actors, they're following a script, whether it's true or not, whether they really believe it or not, but now that's what they're saying, and it's, it's sobering to realize that sometimes this could come from believers. If you read about Christianity uh, online at all, current state of Christianity, you may have come across a term, deconstruction or deconstructing your faith. It's a term being used by a growing list of people who once were Christian pastors teaching the Bible, um, Christian authors, worship song writers and artists, who now are denying everything they once taught or claimed to believe. They, they say they've discovered something new, or they've realized the biblical Christian slavery they were confined by, and usually one of the first things to go is a biblical viewpoint of morality. When you hear a term like deconstructing or some of these people who have abandoned the faith, don't be impressed like it's something new. It's just old-fashioned apostasy that already Paul is talking to us about here 2,000 years ago. So let's clarify uh, two kinds of apostasy. One would be this deconstructing concept I just talked about, which generally involves the loosing of all biblical standards. We could call that license. But actually what Paul is describing here is an kind of an opposite side of apostasy, the other end of the spectrum, affecting the church in Ephesus and, and several New Testament cities where his concern was abandoning the faith for legalism, not license. End of spectrums, but both lies, deceitful things taught by demons or in origin. Legalism is the measuring of godliness by making non-biblical rules. Sometimes it becomes like a standard of salvation. Other times it's just the, way, the what you expect other Christians to do. So it's kind of like a, a road. Two ways to deny the truth. It's kind of like there's a road of God's truth, and a road has two ditches. And the one ditch is license, which basically is redefining what the Bible calls sin, and now sin is okay. It's a good thing, perhaps. Sin is okay. Legalism is the other ditch. That's what we encounter in verses 3, 4, and 5, that the good things that God made are not okay, because now we are going to make rules, defining them as unspiritual you see how both of them are lies, both contradict God, both are demonic. License is a rejection of true godliness. Legalism is a denial or rejection of God's 
grace, our twin truths. Most of the battle that we experience in our culture is over license. It's what we and our children are most influenced by, where now sin is redefined and everything's okay. But Paul was fighting something that still happens a lot, typically in churches, in church environments, and that is legalism. Do you know which is your weakness or tendency? Do you know yourself well? If you remember driver's ed, many of us don't, but if you do, you may have been taught that if there's a time when you sense yourself going off the road, don't overreact. Firmly, clearly get yourself back on the road because otherwise if you oversteer, you're going to shoot across and go into the other ditch just as deadly. In the same way, there is a tendency sometimes as Christians, if we were raised in a more strict or legalistic, rigid type setting, there's a possibility we could overreact to the opposite ditch. In fact, frankly, the deconstructing, whether that's a new term or not, often those people will say, yeah, you know, I grew up and it was all these demands and, and, uh, and, and everything that I had to, had to do all this and now they've reacted. And then there's that other tendency, just as sad, that sometimes a Christian who has maybe had a more prodigal season, if you will, in their life, made some big mistakes, could react to say, I need to be in a group that is more rule-oriented. You know, I need to define things and, and I got I to make <laughs> rules will protect me spiritually. Do you know your tendency? The, the tendency here for the false teachers was seemingly this legalistic type. They, verse 3, forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth, because everything God made was good. So they're making rules about not doing these things. Satan hates grace. He hates the cross. But he also, if we come to faith, he hates it when we live by grace. Satan wants you to believe God is the killjoy. Satan wants us to wallow in false guilt, either about past things that are forgiven or, or false guilt about things that are not even scriptural. There's true guilt. Holy Spirit gives us true guilt to guide us to godliness. False guilt is something we mostly do to each other about things that are not clearly biblical. Do you, ever, do you ever feel guilty about good things God's done for you? Do, do you have people in your life that make you feel guilty when you're enjoying something? You're lounging on the deck, taking a great break. A friend comes up and says, Boy, some people have it easy. Oh, some of us have to work, you know. Maybe it's all in jest and fun. But suddenly you wish like you were working in the garden or maybe studying your Sunday school lesson or something when he came by. Or maybe sometimes we even begin to believe it, like, you know, maybe I am enjoying things too much. I need to kind of hide my blessings. God must weep. This kind of false guilt was happening 2,000 years ago. Um, 
there is record that within decades, in the second century, some of this had become formalized in a couple of different religious groups. One of them was called the Essenes, E-S-S-E-N-E-S. And uh, they had like this list of things you shouldn't eat, even though now it's New Testament age, right? That Old Testament was fulfilled. But they had a list of things you, you shouldn't eat, and it was a men's only group that believed they should not marry because the end was near. I suppose they figured out eventually why their numbers dwindled. <laughs> Another group was called the Gnostics. They taught that real spirituality is a matter of denying yourself anything material or physical that was enjoyable because somehow the body, the material things were inherently evil. And so deny yourself. And it is sad, if you look around at world religions today, how many of these characteristics pervade world religions? That somehow if you are good or holy, it's based on how you deny yourself, punish yourself somehow. So, God created marriage, food, other good gifts. James 1, every good perfect gift comes from above to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Grace. Don't, don't, don't hide the goodness and grace of God. So beware, first of all, of any religious system prohibiting or demeaning marriage because marriage is God's plan and gift. Now, again, the tendency of our culture is to ignore marriage altogether because of the uh, sin is okay license type issue, but he's addressing the legalism. You're more spiritual if you don't marry. Some would say, well, didn't Paul himself not marry and talk about, yes, he did. But he had a spiritual reason for himself, a ministry reason, but he was not claiming to be more spiritual by not marrying. Beware of any religious system forbidding certain foods because God gave us all foods Many people remember, and maybe you're one of them, that can remember growing up in a religious tradition that it's more spiritual not to eat meat certain times or days, or that the most spiritual people don't marry. Always be careful not to define spirituality by what you don't do. There can be good reasons health-wise not to eat certain things. A diet of, of, of cheese curls isn't really great more organic, less processed, but don't spiritualize it. There can be good spiritual reasons to sacrifice something that's fun or enjoyable. We send out our missionaries who give up conveniences and certain foods and enjoyments for the sake of the gospel. You and I, if we are serving, there's a lot of people serving today as we restart ministries. They gave up some time this week. You're going to give up time you know, in relationships. You're going there's all kinds of reasons to sacrifice for, for godly purposes. That's, a pet, that's, that's really the focus of verses 6 through 10. But the issue here is don't measure your righteousness by what you don't do. I hope you, can listen, you hear this carefully. If, if maybe you struggle with thinking that God's never quite happy with you or... People have made you feel that way. And maybe you have become one of those who feel like you have to always point out evil everywhere. And like, like you're 
compelled to compel others. And you could be a person who truly care about righteousness, God's righteousness, and yet become someone who is inducing false guilt. I think we all know our tendencies on that. But everything is created. Nothing is to be rejected if received with thanksgiving. Isn't that risky? Could we just admit that grace is always risky? You can abuse grace, and some will abuse grace to defend sin. It will happen. But if you truly get, verse 3, receiving with thanksgiving, if if you understand gratitude to a God of grace, you will want to please him and not abuse grace. And those who abuse grace have lost their gratitude for God's grace. Um, example, if, if you gorge yourself on a half gallon of ice cream at one sitting, you don't need to raise your hand, but if you, do, if you eat a whole half gallon of ice cream, you sit down and you eat a whole family-sized bag of potato chips, will you feel gratitude to God? You'll feel something, but it... <laughs> But it won't be gratitude. So God-focused gratitude is, is one way to measure, this is God's gift to me. I need to enjoy his goodness. Verse 5 tells us very clearly the other. It is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. We know something is truly God's good gift to us when we can confirm it by God's word and prayer. In other words, not excuse it. Confirm it with God's word and prayer. So so you look at the biblical principles and say, is this something that is permissible and good by God's definition? And then to ask the other question, so as I pray about it, it's something that I should personally enjoy. Now, many of you know I just came back from a nice long motorcycling trip out west. I feel no need to defend that, and no one's made me feel guilty for it, okay? So... How do I know if that's God's good gift to me? Take a vote? <laughs> no. Um, God has to show me that. And I know there's a pretty long season in our life where that wouldn't have been a good idea, based on principles of wisdom and, and priorities. Now, I feel like it's something that is a gift from God to me in this season. And just as you cannot determine God's gifts for me, I can't determine them for you. But what we can do is communicate biblical principles of wisdom and priorities, and then begin to trust that through the word and prayer, because when you see prayer, always realize the Holy Spirit works through prayer. Realize that through the word and prayer, God will direct us. We can trust God to direct us. We can trust God actually to direct others. And that doesn't mean that, that if we are in a close or accountable relationship that we can't, we can't uh, uh, encourage, counsel, exhort one another, but we want to always be pointing gratefully towards God and then graciously towards one another. Satan wants you guilt-ridden because he hates the cross and he hates any form of grace. And here's what he especially hates. 
He hates the way grace actually motivates godliness. And so that's why there's no contradiction as we come now to verses 6 through 10. And we see things like, like uh, laboring and striving. and That's not a contradiction. It's a connected twin truth. So while deceivers will teach the demonic denial of God's grace, spiritual leaders need to teach sacrifice. Coming from grace, leading to godliness. If you, verse 6, if you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus. Point what, point what things out? Verses 3 to 5. If you emphasize God's goodness and grace, then, Timothy, you're doing what you're supposed to do. Nourished or brought up, or some of you have the word trained, in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. So in contrast to the teaching, verses 1 and 2, abandoning that faith or teaching things that are hypocritical lies, you have been brought up in, in the reality of Scripture. You have taught about the grace of God. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourselves to be godly. So if you teach grace, verse 6, you can train people for godliness. The term is uh, nourished, and it's, 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 a, it's, it's an ongoing thing, constantly nourished in the grace of God. The, if your Bible stays in the drawer all week, your view of God will actually become gloomier, and your assumptions about God will become more negative, and you will be demotivated to obey and pursue and serve Christ, because it's grace that motivates godliness. So nourish yourself, it says, in the truths of the faith, or you have the word sound teaching or sound doctrine. The reason we take all this time in this room around God's word, the reason the discipleship center was given to us and the lower level was renovated is because we need to be nourished constantly in the word of God because out there we're not going to get that. And that's what the church is about. Remember our theme verse? Chapter 3, verse 15. The church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. This is, this is where it has to happen. But not only here, but you need to nourish yourself because none of us just eats once a week. And spiritually, we cannot either. So, make sure you're nourished in the scriptures. And verse 7 then reminds us, have nothing to do with the godless myths, this old wives' tales, etc. He's really continuing the thought from chapter 1, verse 4, where he said, Timothy, tell everybody there at the church to, to, to not to teach the false doctrines and endless genealogies, things that promote controversies. We need that. Don't even get into arguments about this stuff. 
Satan loves our controversies if it keeps us from the solid teaching of the Word of God. Rather, train yourself to be godly. How much time do you have each week where you maybe, sometimes unavoidably, sometimes avoidably, are immersed in godless input? How about your children? Entertainment, phones, friends, sometimes school. What kind of untruths are we exposed to and how much and then how much biblical truth? This, this is urgent to train yourself to be godly. And so verse 6 uses the word nourish and the word in verse 7 is the word train. Some translations use train for both of them but really the first word nourish is about diet and the verse 7 train is about discipline. So if you picture it, it's, it's makes all kinds of sense. You need the good nourishment, and then you need a good workout, the training. A world-class athlete's very careful about what he or she eats. I mean, they are, they are just counting calories. They're just shaping their body with being so careful. What is absolute best for me? To be godly, we have to be, care that much about, do I really understand the basic truths of God's word? Do I understand my salvation is really secure and grace is, is the final word? Do I understand how much I need the Holy Spirit to live the godly life and I can't do it on my own? Do I understand that God does fully forgive and as I confess sin and I can walk in fellowship? Do, do I know these essential things? Meat, not cheese curls. Nourishment. Secondly, training. The athlete pushes himself, exerts great effort, counts the reps. You cannot be godly without spiritual discipline in your life. You can't grow stronger without discipline. And so you will need the Word of God, and you, you will need some kind of a plan. So when do you read the Word of God for yourself? When do you pray? Are you committed to fellowship with other believers? That's how God stimulates us and grows us. How do you practice generosity? Who do you serve? When? How? These are spiritual disciplines. And so our mind is, well, wait, wait, now you're talking about legalism. No, this is not legalism. It is legalism. It can become legalism if you do it out of this, this false view of God that he is frowning on you, or you're doing it to please someone who you think is criticizing you. Then you can stray into that ditch. But when you are basking in the grace of God who desires to give you good things because it started with the cross and it goes to your very life and the things you enjoy you are motivated to work out, to exercise, discipline your life. No surprise then that in verse 8, that's exactly the illustration Paul uses. For, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So physical training helps your physical body. We get that. That's a good thing. Spiritual training actually does both. You will find more 
joy, peace, and contentment in whatever circumstances in this life as you train to be godly, but it's also got everything to do with the life to come. I'm glad for my favorite teams train well. That's why the Boxman Brewers and hopefully Packers can win more than they lose. The illustration of physical training always takes me back, as I've mentioned before, to my high school basketball coach. He had these crazy preseason power training drills that were excruciating. You had to keep your eyes focused on the fact that Coach Balzer's teams during the season almost always won almost all other games. Then you can endure the training if you understand the goal and look forward to the joy of winning the life to come. Do you take heaven seriously? Is it just this vague ticket to somewhere sometime after I die? Kind of a relief. Or is it so real for you to understand that we will be there fully alive and present forever? And that somehow what we do here will make that even greater. To be able to rejoice forever at how God used us in some way or ways to influence somebody there. To hear God say to us personally, well done, good and faithful servant. It seems we would be able to praise God even more throughout eternity if we have lived to praise and serve him more here. His reward must be out of this world. We understand forward thinking if we're parents, to go back to that illustration, because we want good health for our kids, good schools, good grades, good colleges, good experiences, good friends, good, good everything. Because why? Because we want them to have a good future. What future? It's called adulthood. Okay? So you know forward thinking. Do you think forward enough like verse 8 so that you would know that there is a future forever and your children to know that you are living for that future forever whether they will follow you in all of that can't guarantee but that they would know that you live for those what changes would it take in mindset and attitudes in relationships in disciplines in schedule, in priorities, so that it would be obvious that you understand how real the life to come really is. So, verses 1 through 5, enjoy God's grace and goodness, but then out of that understanding, discipline, train to be godly. Verse 9, this is a trustworthy statement that deserves full acceptance, and for this, 
we labor and we strive that have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. So in other words, true godliness will require hard work and trusting in a God who is so gracious that he provided salvation lavishly to the entire population of the earth ever. Labor, to work, to the point of exhaustion. You've all done it. Many of you have done that in service to Christ. You have put in hours upon hours, usually or often thankless. You have made sacrifices that have affected your bottom line and meant you couldn't do other things with your money or your time. Is it worth it? Ask some mature Christian who has lived that way sacrificial, sacrificially and you know their character and they will say it is absolutely worth it. Second word is strive. It actually is, has to do with pain or it's where we get the word agonize. And there's hurt. People will hurt you while you're following Christ. Sometimes from within even. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes not. But you'll hurt you will experience hard things. You will experience trials. That, that's not eliminated. That's a, that's, a, that's a terrible misunderstanding to think that somehow if we follow Christ, then, then everything goes good. We'll still have the agony of hurt and even the agony of questioning God and why did you do or, or, or allow what has happened in my life. But here's the thing. We will keep that up when we understand that if, when we have put our hope in the living God who has been so gracious that he was the savior of all the world. So we can, we can keep at it. We can be committed. We can endure. When we have fixed our hope, it says, put your your confidence in a God who is alive, he's a living God here, not just like he's way out there, he's, he's active, and we can trust him to, to give that full commitment when we understand he's a living God, and he's the one who, bottom line, has given grace to the whole world. He's the savior of all men, especially of those who believe, and there's a good doctrinal point to be made there. Sometimes some have said that he only died for those who would believe, but he clearly, he, he paid the price for sin for all. That's how lavish his grace was. He paid for the sin of those who would not believe in him. But there is such a special sense in which those of us who do believe can understand and appreciate his amazing, amazing grace. He paid a debit card sufficient to cover the sins of the entire world, every human being. And those who believe activate the card. I trust you've done that. There's a decision to be made to put your faith in Christ, the one who died for your sins. And then the sufficiency of what Christ did on the cross is applied to your account and your sin is wiped out and your eternity in heaven is secure 
And all of this about living for the one who died for us will start to make sense. He is a God of grace. Satan hates that idea. But as one who is transformed by grace, you can be one that trains for godliness and it makes all the sense in the world because you can trust someone who has sacrificed himself, given his son, to pay for your sins. Let's thank him together. Heavenly Father, we are amazed at grace every time we dig a little bit into it. And someday we will spend eternity praising you for the surpassing greatness of your grace, which is shown to us in your kindness through Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, if we will spend eternity with that focus, please keep our eyes on it now. Your grace will be so big in our hearts and minds that actually our sacrifices become quite small. Help us, Lord, to know where we can easily stray into demanding of ourselves or others something that you have never asked us to. Help us where we might stray the other way to excuse or defend sin. Help us by your grace to pursue godliness because we need your help in Jesus' name. Amen.